Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, around 100 people gathered last night at City Hall to discuss the future of Hamilton's Anti-Racism Resource Center. What do the Ford Motor Company cuts in Oakville mean for the auto industry here in Canada? We'll take a look at that. And also talk about Shopify versus Amazon. And oh, by the way, Hamilton taxpayers, you could be facing a service cut problem or a 5.5% tax hike in the 2020 budget. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. About 100 people gathered last night to discuss the future of the city's Anti-Racism Resource Center. Uh, and we talked to Brad Clark, Council Brad Clark, about this, who is one of the council representatives on this. And there seems to be an awful lot of, uh, well, in some cases, misinformation. I know Councillor Clark was very concerned about some of the information coming from some of the members on this. Uh, he says they've had a meeting and got everything organized, but uh, there seems to be an awful lot of concern about what the committee is doing, uh, the makeup of the committee, and the direction that it may be going in. Uh, Emil Joseph, a professor from McMaster University, uh, presented data at the meeting about uh, the first year of the center and its work. And uh, Emil Joseph joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed on that. Emil, first of all, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I mean, right off the bat, I just your impression and, and maybe your read on this. Why is this taking so long to get this committee up and running and, and on track here? I mean, this has been going on off and on, really, for years now. Uh, there was some misinformation about uh, funding and, and, you know, putting a pause on this a few months ago, too. Uh, it, it's obviously something that I think this community needs, but I'm not so sure everybody's bought into this yet. Uh, I think last night was a... Um, a way to help people understand the big picture. So uh, uh, the way the last 30 years of advocacy that went to develop the center, ask for it, and get to a place where we had a yes. So um, the center was only open for nine months before we lost the one employee. And, And that gave us a good picture of the number of people served by the center and the kind of work that the center needed to do. So 75 individual complaints came in, 17 seminars were conducted, and 46 uh, consultations with community groups and agencies. Uh, So there was outreach there. There was counseling and referral uh, follow-up, as well as education provided, and it's a lot for one person. Um, So the model itself has to be rethought. And yesterday was uh, one way that people could use the data from year one or the first nine months anyway, um, to, to re-envision what, what the center could look like um, rather than get hung up on uh, who's to blame for what went wrong. Well, and I got that sense from Councillor Clark when he joined us on the program yesterday. He basically said, look, whatever happened in the past, uh, here's where we are now. How can we make this thing work going forward? Is, is, is that the, the, the prevalent attitude now? I think so. Um, the city conducted a survey and uh, their data was more of a, a wide-reach general population, 575 respondents. Um, my data that I presented was specifically on people that used the center, so uh, racialized people who had experienced racism. And what they described was racism um, at individual levels in city services and schools and college and university and healthcare, uh, trying to access housing and public spaces even by their neighbors. So really individual, a systemic, and sometimes structural uh, type of racism that we need a a strategy to address. So uh, individual ways to respond, as well as ways to respond to systems and services, as well as policy and law. Um, 
And I, I think last night people got a taste, a flavor for um, how these forms of racism are aligning and arranging. So we saw anti-black racism and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as, as uh, the top um, reported kinds of racism that people were experiencing, um, as well as uh, people... Um, mostly reporting from a certain age group uh, around the age of 30, so that the center might need to rethink how it engages with youth and the elderly mm-hmm. and across the city. Do, does this community, and the city is one of the partners in this, obviously, and this, you know, a couple of councillors are involved in this, but we've read some comments over the last couple of weeks especially uh, about... Uh, some people's attitudes about some of the statistics, and of course there's a Stats Canada survey that indicates that there are more hate crimes per capita in this city than anywhere else in Canada. I know some city councillors take umbrage with that. Uh, do you get the sense, Emil, that, that the people in this community, the people that are involved in this, understand the gravity of this situation? I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of information out there that um, maladaptively helps people to argue against responding to hatred in a way that helps people in Hamilton. I think to argue that um, our problem with hate crimes in Hamilton and hatred in Hamilton is about how easy it is to report kind of diverts our attention away from the fact that even one of these or half a dozen of these is a problem that needs to be addressed in some way. The fact that we have the biggest problem of any city in Canada um, should be one that's acknowledged and respected, not disputed. And if we begin from a place where we generally accept that this is a problem that we all need to rally around, then we can begin by looking at how and moving forward. And I know that's going to be part of the work of the committee going forward on this. In your analysis, though, last night, there's some interesting things that I wanted you to comment on. You mentioned about the 575 residents that filled out the online survey. Uh, and you also mentioned that, that a good number of those, of course, had, had been victimized or had seen this. But there's an interesting thing that you mentioned, yes. You said people uh, are more likely to report uh, experiencing it, or rather witnessing it than experiencing it. So in other words, if you're the victim, if you're the, the, the target of, of a racist uh, slur or whatever, a number, any number of different things, you seem less likely to report that. Why, why is that? Well, the survey data um, was a survey uh, conducted by the city. So those 575 respondents, 46% of them identified as racialized. So that means 54% uh, were likely not racialized. So they were more likely to be witnesses rather than people experiencing. Okay. And, and the, the 75 uh, cases that came into the center, all people who had directly experienced racism, uh, actually... Um, named that it occurred in specific services and uh, in certain neighborhoods, in healthcare and housing, those kinds of areas that I mentioned. Um, and they were, they were people that did report it and then were given referrals to places like the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic where it met a threshold. They were advised to report it to police, the hate crimes unit, et cetera. When, when somebody does go to the, to the purpose of extending and actually reporting this and, and talking to the proper authorities, and as you say, they can be uh, directed towards other uh, agencies that might be able to help, is, is, there, is there follow-up to that, Emil, to understand exactly how this unfurled? In other words, whether they, they received the sufficient help and whether they were satisfied with the service once they did a report, uh, an incident? 
I, as as I reported last night, I think the center needs to do better at uh, independent research and evaluation to collect feedback on how people are experiencing the services mm-hmm. and follow up, so we have a better understanding of outcomes. Because we know they come in, and a lot of people were reporting that they wanted to have the story heard, and that they just wanted it to be collected, the data around uh, what they were experiencing. Uh, many were offered follow up. Many were offered referrals, uh, but not a lot of people were returning for ongoing support. Um, so that is something to look into. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I'm wondering if it was because they were frustrated or because they were satisfied. Right. I, um, I think given the data we have, we don't, like I said, have um, data to tell us how people felt about the outcomes, general outcomes. I think people do feel a sense of frustration that they don't have adequate resources and support, which has come from evidence that we had that argued for the center in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, what we could do better is uh, look at um, how outcomes uh, meet the needs of the people requesting services so that we are following through with our commitment to address uh, racism and empathy. Is, is this committee uh, going to be given, or have they already been given, uh, adequate resources to be able to do that kind of work? Um, no. I think some of the conversation last night outlined that, yeah, you would need some organizational lead, someone to do uh, individual counseling and referral, someone to do administration and data collection and reporting, as well as someone to do outreach and community engagement, and to me, that's that's a minimum of you know four people. Uh, it could it could exist in a number of ways, and some of those models were uh, discussed last night in very um, structured ways, so that people could get give and provide feedback on on what a new center might look like. Have they made a determination actually about which model they're going to use? Because we talked yesterday about that with Councillor Clark. Uh, and they're not quite sure just uh, how they actually want to structure this right now, whether it's going to be an independent board or whether it's going to be a, an arm of a, an existing committee, a city department. That There are a number of options on the table right now. Do you have a preference as to which one you'd like to see happen? I, I think um, people don't want to wait uh, more years for um, organizations and bureaucracies to arrange something that might work or might not work. They want to see action now. So a model that can provide um, the service immediately would have to exist within an existing infrastructure. So inside of a, a community hub model, um, and then with a move towards an independently sustainable community organization. So with that in mind, uh, is there any feedback from the city on how they might be able to help you enable that to happen? Oh, last night, um, they went through the models. Uh, the, the 100 people weighed in in groups um, and uh, discussed pros and cons of each model, uh, resources required, and what plans and models would look like, and actually uh, uh, voted. Um, and so that data and those discussions will be collected and written up in a report, um, and we'll, we'll find out the kind of summary results of all of those discussions um, fairly shortly, I believe. Emil, give me your uh, opinion about reporting mechanisms and reporting back to Council about this and, and how frequent that should actually happen. 
uh, I think at least quarterly and definitely a public annual annual report so that people have a sense of what's going on in Hamilton and what's going well and what's not. Um, I think in the last iteration of the Hampton Anti-Racism Resource Center uh, with just one person running it, um, there were there were gaps in the reporting and the communication. And that also contributes to a lack of appreciation of the problem, its severity, its significance and scope, and uh, and then how we can constantly move forward to amend and address outstanding issues, outstanding communities, and outstanding age groups and demographics not served by, by the current model. Well, and the analysis you've done is going to be very helpful, especially when you've identified that demographic that maybe was a surprise to some of the members of the committee. Uh, and that's obviously going to call for a bit of a reset as to exactly who you're going to target, which begs the next question, I guess, how do you get the word out? Because I know that uh, as you did some analysis on uh, the data over the last year, uh, there were a number of people that didn't even know this committee existed. Mm. The the center itself, um, and also what I reported last night was that the, the website actually didn't get up uh, until some five months after the center had launched. And the physical location was moving. Uh, they changed locations uh, a couple of times during its nine months of operation. And some, some of those things affected uh, how people perceived the center or were able to know about it. I think the amount of outreach has to change um, and the way outreach happens has to change so that people can see and experience and know the center in different parts of the city. And that one of the conversations that happened last night was uh, about how we could have a, a more mobile uh, version of the center. So not only bricks and mortar in one location, but an ability to have uh, satellites where um, a person or people could uh, visit community centers and schools and hospitals uh, to, to uh, collect feedback and to hear people's stories and reports. That's a great idea. In other words, take that message out to the community instead of waiting for them to come to you. That's right, yeah. Makes all kinds of sense. Uh, when we talk about some of the discrepancies, as we did just a couple of minutes ago, uh, one of the things that gets mentioned all the time, and I've heard, some again, some city councillors and some other officials say, well, yeah, but those numbers are, are not really logistic num- you know, realistic numbers. They, and they seem to have a problem with definition about, about what racism is, what an incident is. Is there a commonality here that we can all agree upon to say this is what we're dealing with here? Because some people seem to hide behind that fact and say, well, that wasn't really a racist thing. Yeah, I think there is a, a kind of a disparate and mixed knowledge around how we understand racism. A lot of people understand racism as an issue of individual bias, discrimination, prejudice, and bigotry. But we also have um, experiences of racism inside of systems and services and policy and law. And these are systemic and structural forms that are not about uh, who's to blame. They're really historically based and entrenched. And um, the response to that can't be um, individualized responses. So educating people about bias and prejudice doesn't respond to a systemic issue. Rather, you have to collect data on outcomes so that we can transform uh, how we talk about equity and access in systems and service levels. And that's a different kind of conceptualization of racism that I think Hamilton will understand better in the reporting and doing of this center. Um, in, in its practice and in its work. It is both a service and a piece of 
education and systemic intervention at the same time. Absolutely. And and the work you've done on this, for, I think, is, is just going to be a big, big help as we go forward on this. I, I hope we've got all the wrinkles out of this. I know this is a very fluid uh, process right now, but uh, it sounds as if we've got everybody on the same page. Uh, we certainly want to stay in touch with you and the members of the committee to see just how th- effective this can be over the uh, weeks and hopefully years ahead, too. Emil, thank you so much for the time today. It's greatly appreciated. Well, thanks for having me. Take care. Emil Joseph, of course, Assistant Professor, uh, School of Social Work at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We got more bad news yesterday from uh, the Ford plant in Oakville, uh, where hundreds of people are going to be laid off, and a couple of uh, cars and model vehicles that they uh, have been building there for the last little while are going to be discontinued. Uh, to talk about all this stuff, uh, good to have Marvin Ryder back with us, of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Hi, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Now, we'll get into Shopify in a couple of seconds here, but what is going sure. on with the auto industry? I mean, we, we're, <laughs> we're still dealing with the bad news about General Motors, of course, and the announcement they made some months ago. Uh, the, the Ford announcement, uh, well, to my mind, caught an awful lot of people off guard. What, what was your read on this? Yeah, I, I wish I could say that it caught me off guard, Bill. I have to take you back to July of this year uh, when Ford announced that they were letting go 200 people in Oakville. And at that time, uh, that was to happen in the fall, September, October. And when they made that announcement back in July, they shared that Ford is beginning a very big review of all of its models with a plan of ultimately replacing 75% of the vehicles they have in the North American market by the year, end of the year 2020. In essence, and we've talked about this before, cars, just cars, are not selling as well as other kinds of things like trucks, and the crossover vehicles and the SUVs, and Ford has been feeling for some time that it needs to refresh what it's doing. Now, to give you a sense of this on the world stage, GM is the fourth largest automobile seller at around 6.5 million vehicles a year, or excuse me, 6.8 million vehicles a year, and Ford is number five at 6.5 million. So they're not in any deep, deep, deep trouble, but their read is that they have some vehicles that are not um, achieving the way they should, so they're reviewing them. And the decision made earlier this week dealt with something called the Ford Flex. Now, it was a vehicle, really I'll call it a people mover vehicle. I think you could move seven adults with it. And it was really designed to compete a bit with these uh, uh, caravans and super caravans, the, the sort of the family vehicles. But it never really resonated with the public. Uh, it had been on the market since 2008, and in those 10 years it averaged, averaged 27,000 sales a year which for a car is actually a pretty low number. It, it really wasn't something that you'd see Ford keeping. So when they said they were going to review models, decide to cull some models, add some models, you knew this was a bit of a problem. So when they made this announcement earlier this week, the union workers here in Canada, uh, or the union leaders here in Canada, said, well, we're not really surprised about this. We've been talking about this for the last few years. What we want to know is not this part of the story, but the next part of the story. What are you going to replace that volume with in Oakville? These uh, layoffs are to happen February, March of 2020. Okay, that's bad news. But if you're reviewing models and you're planning to shake things up, what's the good news? There must be some good news models that you're going to invest in and hopefully make in Oakville. And we haven't heard that part of the story. So that's the other thing. 
this story is not done. This is only round two of three. We were waiting to hear what might go into that position instead, and that we might not get until early 2020. And by the way, not the first time this Ford plant in Oakville has been in trouble. I mean, they've, they've you know cut uh, other lines in the past, and, and there was some concern about whether they were going to shut it down. But uh, then they moved, what was the minivan? The Windstar, I think it was, that uh, they started production over there, and then Lincolns, et cetera. So I, I'd like to think there's going to be another element to this. And, and I agree with you. I never liked the Flex. I didn't like the look of it. I, I don't know anybody that owned one, and I, it's, I'm surprised it actually took them this long to finally say, okay, let's move <laughs> on to something else, but be that as it might. But as I was reading about this yesterday, Marvin, yep. uh, I came across a, a phrase that I had not heard before, peak car hypothesis, uh, that we have reached our, our peak car uh, level here. And now I've heard about peak oil some yep. years ago. That was a, a theory that was being floated around, that we were going to run out of fossil fuels. Uh, in the next 10 years or something like that. It sounded a ridiculous theory, but it was out there. What's what's this peak car thing about? Well, I wish I could tell you exactly. I've heard it mentioned in two different ways, and so it's like so many terms, once we sort of start using it, generally people start to misuse it as well. But one of the arguments is that a car, just a standard car that you and I grew up with, just doesn't seem to work for most people today. Um, uh, I still drive a BMW coupe, if you can call it that, or a you know a standard little four-door car. But most people today, when they're looking at their family situations, cars just don't work for them the way they used to. Instead, they're looking at these SUVs and crossovers. And so we may have hit the biggest volume we've ever seen for cars two or three years ago, and we may be sliding away from it. And that the future, especially when you deal with electric vehicles and self-driving vehicles might be something more that is either a truck or a SUV or a crossover vehicle, but actual cars are kind of going the way of the dodo bird. Now, having said that to you, I should also tell you that I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because Ford is relaunching the Mustang. And so there's a 2020 version, just came out in the last few weeks. Oh, you know, all that power and horsepower and rumble and roar that you can remember back from the 60s, if you call it, for lack of a better term, sort of the 50th anniversary of the of the Mustang, and they are bringing that car back, but they view it as a very specialized market. It's it's um, It wouldn't be the primary family vehicle. It would be perhaps a vehicle for someone having a bit of a midlife crisis who's trying to recapture their youth, but it, it's not. So they're still doing cars. I don't think you're going to see the car completely disappear, but the world is saying we don't want cars anymore. GM told you the same thing with the plant they're closing in Oshawa. Those cars that they made in Oshawa, they used to do a million a year. This year it's 100,000. We're voting with our pocketbooks. We just don't like cars. What about demographics? I wanted to ask you about this uh, because I, I'm wondering if one of the factors in this is, well, let's talk about millennials who are obviously a very big part of the marketing for just about any product these days. Yep. An awful lot of millennials I know uh, don't want a car. I mean, you know, they want to live in the inner city. They're going to use public transit. We don't need a vehicle. And that's got to have an impact on sales at some point. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, and I dare not do this, Bill, but I'm going to just tie it even into the election last week. Yeah. You know, the map, map of Canada, if you stood on the moon and looked at Canada, would look very blue. In terms of geography, most of the country, from a geography standpoint, votes conservative. But once you zoom in on the country and you zoom in on the cities, you suddenly see these islands of red and orange because that is the more progressive parts. And what's happened today, 85% of Canadians, and I'm going to say that again, 85% of Canadians live in an urban environment, a city. Now, some of them live right downtown in that sort of condo 
glory. Other people live in the suburbs, but that's where 85% of us are located. That's also where most new Canadians go when they come to this country. They're not interested in being out in the countryside. They want to be in the cities. So we, And we know that number is even going up. Even though 85% of us live in cities, as I look down the road, that number is going to approach 90%. So the students I teach at the university, when they graduate, can hardly wait to work in a very urban environment, get their box of air, their condo that they're going to live in, where they have a concierge every day to handle their parcels as they come and go, things that I never grew up with. And their view of a car is a little more utilitarian. It's not something I'm going to own, but I'm more than happy to rent when I need to. So if I want to you know, go away for the weekend to a bed and breakfast, I'll just rent a car when I need that. Or if I have to family members around well i'll rent a car when i need to do that but i'm not going to own the car in part because the minute i own the car i also have to own a parking space i sometimes call them car condos and those are not inexpensive in places like toronto either so uh, you are seeing younger people turning away now the question then is well are they turn are they turning to the crossover vehicles or are they turning to cars when they need it and again it's a very much mixed message here because they're going to rent whatever vehicle works for them under that circumstance. If they've got to shuttle family members around, then they're probably going to look at a bigger vehicle like an SUV or a crossover. If it is just a little weekend getaway for two people, well, they might still rent a car, but it's not about owning the car. And so that is changing uh, the way the car companies deal with that market as well. Interesting phenomenon, because I, I looked at that, and as you mentioned, I'm glad you brought that, that statistic into this. Uh, here in Canada, actually, your vehicle sales are, are, are I, it's just going off the map right now. So we are buying vehicles, but just don't, I guess we're very discerning about what kind of vehicle we want to drive, though. Yeah, and then again, uh, when I said that Ford is reviewing all these models for the end of 2020, what we're expecting to hear from them, as we saw with GM during the strike, is uh, talk vehicles and self-driving vehicles. Now, you and I have talked about this before, and, and it's absolutely correct of you to note that in Canada in the last year, something like 2% of the vehicles sold were electric vehicles or even hybrid vehicles, that the average Canadian just is not buying these vehicles, <clears throat> but that's at the moment. And there is a school of thought, and it may be a wrong school of thought, because again, when you predict the future, crystal balls aren't clear. But if you can remember, once upon a time, we all had a record collection. And then in an 18-month period, we gave up on records, and all of us almost en masse moved to CDs, and we put those records away. The thinking is this might happen with the electric vehicle in the next three to five years, that whenever they can get this distance between charges close to 500 kilometers and they can get the speed of recharging into something on the order of 5 to 15 minutes, then the world might say, okay, now I'm prepared to switch. Uh, and there are the other reasons for the switch is that the maintenance of electric vehicles are much lower. There are fewer moving parts in those vehicles, um, and and therefore there are there are even filling a tank of electricity is actually much cheaper than a tank of gasoline. So if they can get these other couple of things fixed on mass, we could see this in a short period of time swinging over. And if I'm a car company like Ford, number five in the world six and a half million vehicles every year, I can't be caught looking. I've got to be in the mix of that kind of change if it's happening. And that's why they're going through all these models and right-sizing. 
I'll also tell you one other quick thing. Now that GM strike is settled, uh, United Auto Workers in the United States have now targeted Ford in the next round of negotiations. So if there's to be any plant closures, what have you, I expect we're going to hear this as part of those negotiations. So stay tuned on that front as well. Absolutely will. Uh, very quickly before we have to jump out here, uh, again, I was looking at some of the uh, statistics for online shopping. And, and as you've been telling us, I mean, Amazon just dominates everything, of course. But uh, as I look at the latest stats here, number two is a Canadian company. It used to be eBay, but this this little company that could from Ottawa, uh, Shopify, is already at number two. What's going on there? Well, and let's not call it a little company. Well, not anymore. It's it's certainly a big player now. So uh, in the last week or so, a big announcement out of Shopify that their platform has crossed one million merchants, one million vendors who are using the Shopify platform to sell items. Now, to put that in context, Amazon has two million merchants who use their platform. But wait a minute, you know, you're just the upstart from a few years ago, and they've crossed a million. In terms of valuation, the company is now valued at $35 billion, which puts it ahead of eBay, and they actually have more merchants on Shopify than they do on eBay. So you're absolutely right. This is the little Canadian company that could. But one significant difference uh, is the way Amazon and the way Shopify does things. When you shop through Amazon, it's Amazon first and then whatever merchant second. In fact, I have bought things on on Amazon, and I actually can't tell you the name of the merchant, but I'll tell you I used Amazon. With Shopify, it's the other way around. They put the merchants front and center, and they disappear into the background. People out there may actually have been using the Shopify platform and not realizing it. Instead, uh, they were using it. So, for instance, Staples, the whole staples.ca platform, is actually run through Shopify, but you don't know that when you visit staples.ca. Now, many merchants like that because they get, <clears throat> you know, the recognition or the publicity mm-hmm. of having the website, uh, and they like to have their name going first, and this is one of the ways Shopify is fighting against Amazon. So this Christmas season, we still think Amazon is going to be the, the big bear in the room, so to speak, but this should be another good year for Shopify, and uh, I think it's also interesting that the two companies have kind of a, a love-hate relationship. Once upon a time, Amazon helped a lot of small retailers, and a couple years ago they announced you know, we don't want to do that anymore. You're too small. We don't want to be bothered with you. So well, go go to that Shopify thing up in Canada. How, they'll help you out there. So they actually diverted a number of retailers up to Shopify. Shopify has thanked them very much for that move. Is Amazon, Amazon's not worried, though, are they? Well, you know, uh, Bill, I'm going to say no, and knowing knowing uh, Mr. Bezos and other people like that, I'm sure he's not worried. He's one of the richest men in the world. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, I know in this technology world that what goes up can come down, and it sometimes can come down quite quickly. You and I played witness to the dramatic rise and then the dramatic fall at BlackBerry a few years ago. Nortel would be another technology company that had a big rise and a big fall. Shopify says they want to be around for 100 years. Amazon say they want to be around for 100 years. But we know that these technology companies can sometimes, if they don't get it right, if they don't read the tea leaves right, they can come crashing down. I hope that's not the case. I hope Shopify has a long and very healthy history. But the minute you start uh, coming in the crosshairs of Amazon, Amazon's not going to give up their number one spot very easily. So I'm going to be interested to watch this Christmas season to see how both companies position themselves and how they get through the this whole Christmas season. Absolutely. Marvin, as always, uh, great talking with you. Thanks for this today. 
My pleasure, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the, the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Throw some numbers at you. We talked about this uh, in my ATN commentary this morning. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, well, some information the city council just got uh, the other day. Uh, Hamilton could be facing a 5.5% tax hike uh, or some service cuts as a, a grim uh, result of uh, the, some of the downloading that's happened by the provincial government and some of the other budget pressures. And I know that uh, Mike Zagarek, uh, general manager in charge of the money uh, at City Hall, is, uh, is briefing city councilors about this right now. And uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty rugged story here. Uh, talking about a $6 million increase to the police budget, $2.4 million, conservation authorities. You get the idea, right? Uh, and how do you mitigate that? How do you bring those numbers down? Uh, that's a pretty rocky road that you have to travel to do that. Uh, and uh, council's going to have to make some decisions about that. Give us uh, an update on what's happening and, uh, and some of the possibilities going forward. Uh, Chad Collins, Councilor for Ward 5, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Chad. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself? Well, you're holding up pretty well, obviously, with all the news that you're getting from Mike Zagarek right now. These are some pretty hefty numbers, and this is—I know every year we say that this is going to be a challenge, but this is a, this is a monumental challenge this year. Yeah, I think uh, in that regard, Bill, it, there's less discretion this year in terms of avoiding some of the challenges that we face as it relates to whether it's increased insurance costs or. WSIB um, costs or software licensing, and, you know, there's always the regular impacts in terms of our labor costs and those types of things. And so I think what Mr. Zagarek has highlighted is that this year is more of a challenge than some of previous years. And, of course, we've, we've made tremendous success. It's, I think it's important to note that, as was presented this morning, over the last 12 years, uh, the average tax increase here in the city has been 1.9%. So we've done very well historically. Uh, this year, which is I, below think, inflation, by the way. Yeah, and it's and it was almost uh, led the percentages in Ontario as it relates to some of the lowest increases. And of course, through those processes, we we've had to make some operational changes. It hasn't come without some cost, um, but I think by and large, we've been able to maintain some of the services, main services that our residents and businesses come to rely on, whether it's snow removal or cutting the grass and those types of things. And so, we, we haven't. Um, we haven't had to make too many drastic decisions. And I think, you know, to be fair as well, I was a big critic of Kathleen Wynne and her government on a number of fronts. Um, they lived up to their word um, of uploading uh, previous costs that were downloaded to municipalities under the Harris government. So o- Ontario Works is a prime example. Um, you know, that we achieved a lot of savings over that 10 years period that I just referenced. And, and, and by and large, it was with some assistance from the provincial government, not all of it, but some of the assistance came from the province. And that pendulum now, Bill, has swung. So we're now seeing a government that is looking to do the reverse. They're actually downloading services or cutting resources to municipalities. And part of Mr. Zagarek's presentation today was highlighting the fact that, uh, you know, of the 5.5% that we're looking at currently, half a percentage point. It can be directly correlated to the the actions of the, the current government. And the fear is, as was the fear last year, that there will be other costs that are downloaded, either hinted at through the budget update that they'll give in a, in a couple of weeks or um, a part of their budget process um, soon after we uh, approve ours next spring. And that's one of the things I talked about in the commentary this morning was, uh, you know, when governments say we're going to put money in your pocket, uh, they're not really. All they're doing is downloading the cost of the municipality, and, and that money that's in my pocket right now, that extra couple of bucks, is probably going to go to a tax increase, on my property tax increase, uh, which, of course, I pay for with after-tax dollars. So this is this not a win-win situation for anybody when the, this downloading starts to happen again. 
Yeah, downloading historically, as you know, it, it, and you were on council at the time. It was you know we were just bombarded with costs that were traditionally provincial uh, budget items, and so whether it was ambulatory services, housing was a big one. Ontario Works. The list goes on and on in terms of services that historically were provided by the provincial government, paid through the revenues that they collected. Um, and, and part of the scenario in the late 90s was the province um, des- decided to change the who pays scenario and decided that municipalities needed to pay more for services in some cases they, they hadn't previously offered. And so ambulatory services were passed on to us. Um, uh, housing was always historically for decades um, a provincial um, provided service and in many parts of Canada I believe Ontario is still the only one that uh, that uh, forces municipalities p- to pay for that service mm-hmm. so that changed the landscape uh, for municipalities it, it had a huge impact on municipal budgets not just here in Hamilton but across the province and we've been struggling since that time to to pay for these services housing is a great example again um, you know the, Matthew Van Dongen and some of the other spec reporters did a great series of, about a week or two ago in terms of the current state of housing not just here in Hamilton, but across the province. And it's, and it's a bleak scenario, and it, and it speaks to uh, an issue of a backlog of repairs. And, um, and, and so essentially that inventory of, of, of households was, uh, it was downloaded to the municipality with no resources to, to fix them or to, to maintain them. And so the, that's the scenario we're in now. Some of those issues are starting to, to catch up to us. And uh, back to my original point, uh, you know, kudos to the previous government, who had the vision and, and the foresight to to try to correct that scenario? This government, unfortunately, seems to be going in the opposite direction. Well, and uh, we're all the worse for it as a result of this because of these costs. And and I know that the the, the rationale that the provincial government will always come back with is, well, you don't have to pick up the cost. Well, yeah, you do. Uh, and as a matter of fact, and I know you've made this point in the past, Ted, when you've come on and talked about this, an awful lot of the budget, and I'm sure that this was covered again by uh, by your staff, by Mister Zagarek today are mandatory programs. You can't say, well, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. The law says you have to pay for it. That's right. Yeah, there's there's little discretion in, in terms of some... Uh, there there may be, you know, for a, a, a select few, child care subsidies, one I think that we'll have some debate around, and they're just discussing that now, in terms of um, the provinces pulled their portion of the subsidy for the spaces, and there's there's now discussion as to whether or not does the city now step in and pick up those costs, or... Does that, does that cut get passed along to the user? Um, that's w- one very rare exception in terms of where the city has some discretion. Um, with most of the others, it is basically, you know, the, the invoice comes our way and we're mandated to pay it. And so there is little discretion. And that's why when I, when I talked earlier at the start about, you know, the 5.5% that we're looking at, there's not a lot of wiggle room here. And it means, um, as, as I noted to Matthew Van Dongen uh, yesterday, it means that you know we're forced to make some service level changes here in the city with with programs that we offer and services that we offer, and, and that might mean, as was noted, um, that might mean you know charging for blue boxes. That might mean um, waiting a little bit longer on the line when you call the city, so we still have our call center, but maybe instead of you know I use this as an example, maybe instead of waiting thirty seconds, you're waiting a minute and a half. So those are some of the things that we're looking at, and and. Um, I think everything's up for discussion at this point in time. Five and a half percent is just, you know, from a from an affordability standpoint, it's a non-starter for most Hamiltonians. It's well, and, and when these things started and the downloading started, and like you say, we're going back about 18, 20 years, and now it's kind of like this is the you know part two of this whole program. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that we did some research back in that day, and I, obviously that data is still around. I mean, some municipalities deal with this in different ways. 
Uh, and you mentioned snow clearing a minute ago, and that's something that's going to mm-hmm. be front of mind for a lot of people in another couple of weeks now. Uh, I mean, we, you and I both know that there are some municipalities that simply say, well, we're not plowing side streets anymore. We've got to cut our that's cost, right. and that's it. Uh, or, hey, we're going to wait until there's uh, 10 centimeters of snow before we send the plows out. And we, right. we said we can't do that. We don't want to go that way. And, and you've been able to avoid that. But, boy, we're getting closer to that point, Chad, where you're going to have to make some of those calls. And it's it's going to be tough, and it's going to be tough on the community. That's right. And and I think Mr. Zagarek refers to those as core services. So those, yeah. those would be the services that most people... Um, you know, sitting at home, they, they know that, you know, if there's a snow removal problem, it's call the city. If there's an issue with the grass cutting in the local park, call the city. Those are core services that we provide. And, and historically, we've been able to uh, avoid affecting those service levels. In fact, just a few short years ago, uh, maybe five or six years ago, we increased our snow removal service. Yeah. And so we're now, as when we benchmark our our costs and our services versus other municipalities, we're we're far ahead of many when it comes to snow removal, just as an example. And so those are the types of, of things that we'll be looking at. I, I think from my colleague's perspective, and, you know, today is one of the first budget meetings we've had leading into 2020. I know that some are hesitant to look at core services, but when we're looking at, you know, 5.5%, and, we, you know, our goal is probably somewhere around inflation or just above, that it means, you know, every every percentage point on the municipal tax bill is uh, eight eight and a half million dollars And so, you know, getting us down two or three percentage points means, you know, $20, $24 million worth of savings, which is a huge, huge undertaking. It's something that we we haven't taken out of the service before. I think the last major the last major uh, cut we would have made was in our senior management. You might recall under Chris Murray's leadership back in 2017, we cut, I believe it was 80 senior managers from our, our, um, our bureaucracy, and that came with tremendous savings. It helped us that year get down to the 2% level. And I think those are the types of initiatives that we're probably looking at again, although there's probably less discretion today than there was a couple of years ago because we've already been through that exercise. Well, and, and therein lies the problem is, is obviously you have to worry about service levels when you do that. And, you know, on the one side mm-hmm. of the ledger, you can say, here's the money we're going to save. Uh, and the other side, you're going to say, okay, how's that going to impact? Uh, you know, yeah. there's always a discussion every year, Chad, for instance, about user fees. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we may be facing another increase on that. And, and, and you know the fallout from that as well. I mean, if you say, okay, it's going to cost more to rent the ice at, uh, at such and such an arena or, or to get a ball field or a soccer pitch for the season for your league, uh, that, pa- that cost has got to be passed on to the, the parents who have their kids signed up for that. So, I mean, everybody is impacted by this. But at the same token, you can't simply say, okay, we're not going to touch that at this stage because you don't have a whole lot of wiggle room here now. No, and, and you make a good point, Bill, in terms of public consultation. So there's, you know, we, whenever we look at service uh, either cuts and or service fee increases, there's always broad consultation. And so whether it's with our sport user groups or in the case of uh, parking fees, as an example, um, you know, historically we've looked at uh, on-street parking fees at meters and or city parking lots. Traditionally, when we, we open up that conversation, we turn to our business improvement areas and ask them, you know, what, what would, what is your position on this? What kind of impact do you foresee in terms of your business areas? We're, we're certainly not looking to hurt uh, segments of the population, or in the, in, in the case of parking fees, we're not looking to create problems for local businesses, especially small businesses, mom-and-pop businesses. And so that's part of the challenge as well. We can have these ideas on the table, and we can present them, but, of course, there, there's always that community component and that consultation component. So there, people will be affected, whether it's an increase in fees or a reduction in service. And I think it's incumbent on council through this process to to try to understand what those impacts are 
and have those impacts in mind when we're ready to make that decision. And, and by the way, I know you're you're not at that stage yet with the public consultation, but we'll certainly talk about that on the show when, when you're doing those and the meetings are, are going to be held because obviously this is going to be important. Uh, another mm-hmm. very touchy area that I know you're going to have to get into again this year uh, is the possible sale of assets, and, I, and, and that's always a very touchy subject too uh, because you always look at this, and I know right now what's going to happen is somebody's going to say, do we really need three golf courses? Do we really need two uh, you know, uh, seniors' homes? And on and on. It lists. And I know you've talked about the downtown facilities already, and, and, and that's yep. in play right now, and you're looking for options. So, But there's an awful lot of other stuff right now that if, 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 I guess in some people's minds, unfortunately, you're going to have to put it on the table and have a discussion about it. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, back to... I think the term Mr. Zagarek uses utilization rates. And so we start to look at some of our facilities in terms of how often they're being used. Some of our arenas is a prime example. We've had many associations in the inner city bill that um, no longer exist. And so the arena is there and there's no local hockey association that's using it. And they're being used as overflow facilities for areas where hockey is still uh, very popular. And I use my own arena in my own area that I inherited through the ward, um, distribution uh, board boundary uh, review last year. Um, I've, I've now um, am counselor for the Stony Creek area in downtown Stony Creek, and yeah. we have Stony Creek Arena. That association has now gravitated to other facilities because the condition of that arena is so poor. It's so old. It needs a lot of capital work. And right now we're, we're I think we're housing um, hockey programs from the Glanbrook area. So I think it's one of those discussions when we start looking at utilization rates and whether or not some of these capital facilities, whether they be buildings or you mentioned the golf courses and other things, those are the types of discussions that we need to have in terms of, you know, is this the year where that arena closes because we just don't have the resources to to fix aging infrastructure that in some cases is 30, 40 years old. And to, to be clear, the need in that geographic area, in the case of, you know, the, the, the local hockey association has moved on to another facility. Um, you know, that has changed the landscape as well. So those are the discussions that we have. I, I, I will be presenting that issue to my council colleagues. And there are probably dozens of others where we have some of these older buildings in some of the suburban communities that may be used by the optimists or some other service club. The municipality has ownership of it. We're responsible for the capital, but we have no municipal use for it. And so those are, I know some of my colleagues are, are having uh, some discussions currently in terms of, you know, where we go with those. So it, difficult decisions around capital and some of our facilities. And as you note, it's an annual process, but this year I think the mic- microscope is, um, is, for, is, um, is um, um, more focused on some of those issues than they may have been in the past. And, and by the way, I, I just want to reiterate here that this is not a Hamilton-only problem. I mean, just about every mm-hmm. municipality is dealing with this because they're all dealing with the same downloading and, and the same budget pressures that, that we've just talked about here. Uh, but but obviously, the, you know, we're going to talk about the Hamilton uh, bent on this because obviously this is going to impact our community and, and where we're mm-hmm. living right now. Uh, what Very quickly, though, what's your time frame here? I mean, invariably, this, this goes on usually until about springtime before you can finally nail this thing down. Uh, are you anticipating any more surprises from the provincial government? Or is is the scenario that you were being presented with today pretty much what you're going to have to deal with? Well, I think we, you know, just as we dealt with last year, I think we're, you know, waiting to see what happens with the province. They have their budget update they'll provide, I think, November 7th or first week of November. We'll wait to see if there's anything there that will have an impact on municipalities. And then, of course, the big challenge comes in the spring when they present their budget. And, and as part of the last um, budget they presented, 
it came out in dribs and drabs. If, if you recall, Bill, you know, it was two weeks, three weeks, in some cases a month or two later, we found out that certain things were buried in the budget that would have an impact on us. And, of course, it's hard to make those in-year changes when we've already established our own budgets. So we are a little concerned about where this government is going. It, it, they have reversed the trend of the previous one in terms of instead of uploading, we're looking at downloading. Uh, in terms of our own process, we will deal with our capital budget through the month of December and into January. Then we get into our operating budget, and we hope to have our, our operating budget finalized sometime in, in March or early April. So that's the traditional timeline we've used, and as I noted, it, it means a lot of um, a lot of work in, in those months, not just with our staff, but with council as well. There's a lot of day-long meetings, and through all of that, there's a public consultation process, and we welcome and invite emails and calls from residents if they have suggestions to always send them through because I, I, I think it's important for us to know the, the mood of the community as it relates to um, service reductions in some areas or operational efficiencies. It's, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, oftentimes through this process, we find better ways to provide the service at a lower cost, and I think that's an important point to make as well. Do you have a goal? I mean, it's 5.5%, and I mean, that's never where it's going to end up. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Bill. That's the question we're being asked this morning by our staff. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've been around 2% for the last, um, you know, 12 years. I, I think it's very unlikely that this year we'll hit that 2%. We'll probably in the low threes, if I had to guess, but I, I can't speak on behalf of my colleagues. And of course, you know, a lot will be, det- that's a goal, whether we reach it or not is another thing. But I think we're, we're striving to get as low an increase as possible. So I'd be guessing at this point, but it's it's unlike other years as has, has been the theme of our conversation right now. And I, and I think it's anyone's guess in terms of where we're going to end up at this point. Which is why we need to have these conversations. I mean, it's one thing to yep. throw a number and say, oh, it's going to be 3.1 or whatever. We want to know what 3.1 looks like. What are we going to get? Correct. What are we going to have to do without? Or what are we going to have to have less of? Uh, and, that's right, and, and that's obviously the discussion going forward. Uh, lots more to come on this, obviously, in the months ahead, Chad. Thank you much, uh, for so much for uh, popping in today, though, and hopping out of the meeting to give us an update on this. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Yep, thanks for having me on. That's uh, Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.